The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Fisgianados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Tuesday, May 14th, and this is the Fisgianados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinadospod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. This week we're going to look at the PBC on Fox and kind of like what that means, what that series is. Uh, We'll do a pretty deep review section on what happened, especially... On the Saturday, May 4th fight for DAZN, the Canelo-Jacobs fight, uh, and then do a quick preview. I don't know what any upcoming shows are going to be yet. I'm going to have to think about that. Uh, but we do have some really interesting upcoming fights and some big moments for, for a lot of uh, broadcasting entities. Let's, let's leave it at that for right now. Let's jump into the review section. Okay. On Saturday, May 4th, on zone, we had the big one with Canelo Jacobs. Canelo Alvarez defeats Danny Jacobs by unanimous decision to retain a bunch of titles. And most importantly, he's obviously the man at middleweight at this point. On the undercard, Virgil Ortiz Jr. defeats Mauricio Herrera by KO3. Jojo Diaz stops Freddy Vonseca by KO7. Lamont Roach Jr. wins a tight unanimous decision. A lot to talk about here because for the first time we actually saw some numbers on what DAZN is doing. And then there was the broadcast itself, which I will get to later. Uh, I would also I'll actually start with the final few days of marketing and promotion and what that looked like for DAZN. I was very positive in general on DAZN's marketing plan last episode. But one thing I've mentioned before and I didn't really mention last episode I'm not a big fan of DAZN's anti-pay-per-view message. Uh, It doesn't work for me at all for a variety of reasons, but mostly just because I think you should define your brand as what you are rather than what you are not. And saying pay-per-view is dead and what you're doing isn't pay-per-view, I mean, that's a fun and easy thing to do kind of like right out of the gates, but to a lot of people that signed up for the May 4th fight, DAZN is probably just a cheaper version of pay-per-view that you can now explore and see what else you like about it. Pay-per-view in general is a one-night stand between a business entity and a consumer. And while DAZN is trying to establish a real relationship between itself and the consumer, like that's a factor. And then it's kind of like disingenuous to say that you're killing pay-per-view because I don't think you know pay-per-view should even be part of the conversation if you're trying to establish that this is a longer-term relationship that you want to have with the consumer. Also, pay-per-view is clearly not dead. As hardcore boxing fans, you all know this. There's tons of pay-per-views on right now. Just don't talk about it. Focus on, you know, what you should, like, now that you're getting all the big fights, you're giving fight fans great fights, 
all the big fights at a much better price point, you know, in a great service, I think fans would respond to it. Anyways, I've said that before on Twitter. I think I've said it before on the show. Going to the specific event marketing. Like I mentioned last episode, I thought DAZN did lay a very solid groundwork for establishing brand recognition with the casual boxing fans starting several weeks out from the May 4th fight. But as we closed in the last few days leading up to the fight, I did not get targeted socially until the day of the fight. I didn't get targeted programmatically at all. That kind of digital targeting means that DAZN is essentially using all this information that's out there to find out who is a hardcore boxing fan and then blasting them with digital ads. That's basically what programmatic marketing is. It's marketing to the person rather than to the site instead of buying. Well, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but it's they're, they're figuring out who the hardcore fan is. The ads can come on social media. They can go website to website. It's basically, I'll just say it now, it's basically instead of buying out a place like ESPN.com, you are figuring who is a boxing fan and then serving them an ad wherever they go, regardless of whether it's ESPN.com or any other website that's out there. There are a variety of ways you can send them an ad. And look, I I don't want to get into it. It can get incredibly complicated. Uh, you know, and it, and it can get complicated too, just to identify who is a, a hardcore fan in many instances, but specifically for me, because I'm using myself anecdotally, I am a DAZN subscriber, so you have my email. I go to the DAZN website to find out when fights are happening. So, like, you should have me cookied, you should have me targeted. There's no question that I should be seeing your ads a lot. And I mean, I also specifically, I don't know what other information they're using, I get targeted with Spanish ads all the time because of how much boxing... I consume basically, and I didn't see anything like that digitally. Now, again, like I don't watch Mexican soccer, I don't watch anything like that, but I go to a lot of places where I should have seen DAZN court the Mexican casual, like the Mexican American casual boxing off uh, audience, and it wasn't happening. Like that's like the low hanging fruit part of the equation here. I don't know enough about their campaign to say that they got that part wrong, but I will say I probably didn't see enough of it as someone, you know who essentially gets targeted as if I were a Mexican-American casual boxing audience or just as a hardcore boxing audience. And as someone who goes to the DAZN site, like I should have been targeted more. That didn't happen. You'd have thought that DAZN would have been all over that part of it. Okay, let's move on to the actual production. I'm not going to sit here and totally defend DAZN on some of the issues, but I do want to ratchet the, the heat down a little bit. Let's go to the big stuff first. Like, uh, stuff I didn't like. I has I've said this about both Canelo fights on Twitter. I don't know if I've said it so far on the podcast. There's no reason that the fight should be starting at 11:45 p.m. Eastern. This is a streaming service. There are no pay-per-view buys. The last two undercards were KOs. That's just entirely too late to start a main event where you aren't waiting up until the last moment for pay-per-view buys. You know, and and some of that is just historically the boxing audience has been conditioned to think that. For these types of events, the undercards don't matter. The main event starts way later than what your tune-in actually says. We've already seen pay-per-views. We've seen this start to be corrected. We've already seen pay-per-views start an hour earlier in the past sometimes. I hope this this trend continues. I hope DAZN moves it up 45 minutes. The people on the East Coast, like this main event, main events for stuff like this should be starting at 11. 
Like that's really when they should be starting. It should be over by midnight. There's just no question about it in my mind. Okay, another thing. USA Today put out an article saying there were all sorts of problems with people signing up and streaming issues through the night and the announcers were bad and all that kind of stuff. I personally, I'm skeptical anytime a media outlet that doesn't like, typically cover something, anytime they run an article like this, especially when it's kind of based on anecdotal evidence, like I'm a little bit skeptical of it. I was skeptical of this. My stream worked fine. I asked the question on Twitter, and some people did say there were issues, like they had a friend who had some issues, something like that. A lot of people did not say that. Like they said they had no issues. It ran fine. There were you know nothing to worry about. Um, I know there were some social media issues saying that you know there were issues here and there. I, I just I don't know what to make of that, but I'm surprised USA Today ran with that because I don't know how you. Uh, other than the fact that Daniel Cormier, like the UFC heavyweight champ, had some issues uh, with the way the announcing team was, I, I just I don't know what other evidence that was out there. You know, just beyond a couple of people complaining about it on Twitter. So, um, when it comes to the announcing team, let's move on to that. I'll defend DeZone on this one for a little bit. I think some of the criticism is warranted, but look, as someone who worked for HBO for years. With Jim Lampley, probably one of the best ever, if not the best ever, calling a lot of these types of level fights for years. All I'm going to say is, I basically heard the same complaining I've always heard on this issue. People complain about big pay-per-view fights on HBO and the announcing on it. It, it, I mean, without fail, every single time. Always complain. There's people who, though buy the stream with an international feed or they'll do this or that they or they mute it or whatever uh you know i i don't i don't get that i think we're at like we're at the point where hardcore fans are always going to complain about this no matter what at least from from people like my point of view like that's they're always going to complain about it no matter what i think the noise is much louder than the actual legitimate gripes there were some legitimate gripes with this broadcast but the way the fan base complains about it, it's like we're at the boy crying wolf in, in terms of this. Now, I do think when if you get to specific complaints, I do think Brian Kenny overstepped his boundaries a little bit because not only was he calling the fight, but he was also kind of giving color commentary on it with some really strong opinions that affected the narrative of the fight, perhaps affected how Sergio Mora could jump in from time to time. Uh, but I pretty much agreed with Chris Mannix's scoring of the fight, and I thought he was great coming in. As sort of the third guy in the booth. Uh, and and like I said, while Kenny may have overstepped his boundaries, I don't think he was actually that far off in terms of how he viewed the fight. Yes, he called it heavily in favor of Canelo, but the only real mistake for me was that he just didn't mention how close some of the rounds were. Like, he didn't focus on that because the actual scoring of the fight wasn't that close for me. Canelo won a lot of close competitive rounds, but Canelo won them. He clearly won them. They were close, but he clearly won them for me. And it doesn't matter how close they were once they're scored. You know, I actually think the judges could have scored it a little bit wider in favor of Canelo. There were surely some moments, like when the broadcasting team wasn't calling the action as well as they should have been. And I think if you're interested more in that, Adam Abramovitz wrote a great post-fight wrap-up piece that focused on that in particular, that is definitely legit. Uh, but to the people who said that the event wasn't a big enough field because of the announcing team, that's silly. Like, you know, there's just, this is, this is what it is. I mean, Lampley's still on an exclusive deal with HBO. It's probably a while before that wraps up and, you know, 
he's probably not leaving yet based on how well he's getting paid, I'm guessing. Um, you know, maybe the DAZN team didn't have the best night they could have had for that single fight. But if you look at the overall trajectory of what they of what DAZN specifically has done with their booth, I think it's really good. Go watch the first broadcast they did in October from Chicago. There's been turnover, and I think a lot of it has helped the overall value of the booth. Sugar Ray Leonard has moved to kind of like a more ambassador type of role. I think he's been effective with that. I don't think he was great at, call, at, at being a color commentator on the actual, you know, in-ring action. Kay Adams is sort of like this bubbly host who needed to, you know, learn more about the sport. And like in the current iteration of what the team, of what they're trying to do right now, I think she was probably necessary in the beginning. I'm not sure she's needed right now. Mannix has been given a much more prominent role. I think he's been great the whole time. I think he was great at the beginning. I think he's great now. His post-fight interview with Triple G after the Canelo fight, I thought was tremendous. Uh, Mora overall has, for me, has been really good. Like I think he needs more reps. He needs a little bit more development time. And maybe he didn't have his best call on this one specific fight, but I think his overall body of work has not been that bad. Um, and I don't think there needs to be major changes. Now, Nine months from now, if Mora hasn't developed or Brian Kenny is still doing it this way, okay, maybe we'll talk. But for right now, I think a lot of that's just been overblown. Um, but enough on that. The actual numbers for DAZN. A few outlets put out the numbers that DAZN had 1.2 million streams worldwide and over 600,000 streams in the U.S. at its peak. These are very good. They're not excellent, but they're very good numbers I have a feeling DAZN put them out to combat the narrative that, like, maybe it was somewhat because of that USA Today article, maybe it was somewhat they were feeling, the pressure on social media, uh, and maybe it's just because they're trying to get into those NFL Sunday ticket package discussions, which we talked about last week, and side note, we saw a Forbes article sort of starting to insert them into those discussions, uh, saying that John Skipper was trying to get in on that, but DAZN was obviously happy enough with the numbers to put them out there in public. They're good if you had to put the subscribe, you know, I think I'd put the subscriber base based on those numbers at over 700,000 in the U.S., assuming they're correct. I know I've heard they did really well initially from marketing to the core uh, Bellator fan early on and did well uh, on sign-up numbers with that. I think if this fight was a pay-per-view, it would have done somewhere in the 800,000 to 1 million range if it was done right. But maybe not quite as much. Maybe it would have done less. The attendance figures were certainly not overwhelming at all. Um, so I think like if you're a DAZN, you have to be encouraged by this. And I think there is clearly room to grow, as you can tell by my thoughts on the whole thing, which are you know, somewhat mixed, but overall I think pretty positive. I also think based on what I mentioned last week, Netflix, at this point, Netflix, one of the most widely known streaming services, you know, certainly the most widely known streaming service in the world, probably one of the most widely known brands in the world in the entertainment industry. They spend $160 per subscriber uh, to acquire new subscribers. And DAZN basically, if you just want to make it really, if you want to oversimplify it, DAZN, let's say 300,000 of those uh, streams at the peak, let's say half of them were new subscribers. DAZN spent $48 million on the fight. 300,000 new subscribers at basically the same price, 160 bucks for new subscribers. Guess what? That's incredible compared to Netflix because no one really knows what DAZN is in terms of, of mainstream 
uh, sports fan compared to everyone knows what Netflix is. So I, I actually think that's really good. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, I, th- I think you have to be pretty happy with it. I don't want it to come off as saying I think they screwed up with a lot of that stuff. I think if you run a good operation, you're always going to look back and, and see what you did well and what you think you need to improve upon. And I think they'll probably be pretty happy with all of this. Let's move on to the other fight on Saturday, May 4th. On ESPN, we had Arthur Betterbiet beating Hot Rod Kalogic by KO5, Gabe Flores winning by KO3 and drawing a nice home crowd, and then Jerwin Ancajas beating Ryuchi Funai by KO7. The fight averages 480,000 viewers, and there was obviously intense competition from the NBA, the NHL playoffs, and then obviously the DAZN fight. The main event peaked at a little over 600,000 viewers and actually started at almost exact same time as the DAZN main event, which featured Canelo. So it's actually, this number is like not terrible for, for top rank. I mean, there's really, there's been two cards, including this one. There's the one that was opening um, Saturday of the NCAA tournament. They've not done well overall. And I think when you look at this number just in isolation, it's certainly not great. But based on what it was up against, I actually think it's like not terrible. So, um, okay, let's move on. Saturday, May 11th on ESPN, we had Miguel Burchelt beating Francisco Vargas by KO6 and Emmanuel Navarrete <clears throat> beating Isaac Dogbay by KO12. It averages 740,000 viewers. It was the number seven cable show of the night. It follows the UFC prelims, which was the number five cable show of the day. Uh, and averaged that one averaged 813,000 viewers. And all this is really interesting uh, to me, just like based on a lot of factors here. So just for clarity's sake, ESPN televises the UFC prelim undercard fights, which if you know, if you aren't familiar with UFC's product, I talk about it a lot because it's two combat sports. They're, they're, you know, boxing, MMA, two combat sports, high amount of viewer, uh, in, in, you know, crossover. But if you don't know how they do this, it's basically the UFC prelims are, it's a two hours and four fights and these are the four fights that precede the actual pay-per-view event. And so if you're, again, if you're only a boxing fan, the pay-per-view event is five fights on a pay-per-view card. But what the UFC brand does in direct opposition to boxing, you know, the UFC sort of stacks. It's known for stacking its card with good fights top to bottom. Um, and whether you are a hardcore UFC fan or not, and you may have a an opinion on that, but in general, it always does it much more so than boxing does. But anyways, the whole point of this is the prelim cards actually turn out to do pretty well in terms of TV ratings, where if you look at like prelim TV cards for boxing, they do generally terrible. Um, It's interesting to me also because ESPN has a slightly conflicted interest here because in addition to wanting to get a good rating on both the UFC prelims and top-ranked boxing on actual ESPN. ESPN is also the exclusive distributor of UFC pay-per-views on ESPN+, Plus, so they want you to buy the UFC pay-per-view as well. So they have to sort of present this in a way where they want to retain viewership from the UFC prelims to top-ranked boxing, 
yet they want to encourage people who are watching the UFC prelims to actually go buy the pay-per-view. But they also need to tell you, if you don't actually want to go buy the pay-per-view, here's another excellent sort of combat sporting event for you to watch. Um, and, and I think it's just fun to watch them sort of toe the line. Um, but I think it's smart to have both of these types of programs on back-to-back. You know, this night faced, it didn't face competition from NBA playoffs. It did face the NHL playoffs and the Fox card, which came on a little bit earlier. I think it timed out so you could watch both, certainly both main events. I'm not sure that it timed out so you could watch both cards in full. Uh, but more on that in a second. Um, overall, it's a pretty good rating for ESPN. It's it's really good, actually. And, it, and it's good fights on paper. They, did, they didn't quite deliver as much as they should. The Isaac Dogbay train, which I was totally on board for. I mean, we're at a major pit stop there, and I know this has been said before, but I can't imagine him moving up in weight is going to do that much for him. I'm still rooting for him either way. Uh, (laughs) I will certainly watch his next fight, but I really hope it's not against someone who's much taller with much longer arms than he has because he just couldn't figure that out. I don't know what he should do. He should probably re-examine his training camp and, and how he is being trained with his father. I know those things are tough. I'm still rooting for him either way. Miguel Burchelt looks great. I think top rank is this setup where there's a potential unification bout with the May 25th winner, uh, and they have built some really interesting fights in that division. And quite frankly, as I've said all along, this was a division ripe for interesting fights, so good for doing what they were supposed to do. Uh, that is That is good stuff. All right. Also, on Saturday, May 11th, on Fox, we had Julian Williams defeating Jared Hurd by unanimous decision. Also on the card, Mario Barrios wins by KO2 over Juan Jose Velasco and Matt Korobev and Emmanuel Aline fight to a draw. The fight, or the, the night of fights, averages 1.385 million viewers, and the main event peaks at over 2.1 million viewers, which is encouraging, especially after the last couple cards. Uh, a little bit on the main event here because I think it has to be in that discussion for fight of the year from what we've seen so far. Um, it actually helped. I helped out my guy Johnny Wilds as a guest on his uh, NewYorkFights.com column. I was a guest columnist there uh, or a guest panelist there. I predicted her to win by unanimous decision, and I and but for the fight to be initially close and then her to eventually pull away. But I mentioned as a caveat that Hurd's weight cut will catch up with him sooner rather than later. And I think look, two things happened here in this fight. First of all, the much more important factor in all of this is that Julian Williams looked great. And he really beat Hurd at Hurd's game and dominated the infighting that happened there. I, mean, you know, I know that's been said before. It still needs to be mentioned. Credit to Williams and his trainer, Stephen Breadman Edwards, for the fighter development that has happened in the last few years because... I've watched a lot of this guy fight, and you can see major improvement here, especially in terms of gradual, like, last two or three years from fight to fight, you've seen major both mental and physical improvement. Like, it's very clear that he was, for this fight specifically, not just in great shape physically, but also mentally, and there were really solid in-ring strategy and tactical adjustments that kept him winning the fight from start to finish. Second thing here, and I want to go back to what I mentioned in in, in the pre-fight article, the weight cut. I think 
I think the weight cut and to a lesser extent Hurd's fighting style are catching up with him. And I mentioned this, I've gone through this in wrestling. And look, this was a year in high school for me where I went through way too big of a weight cut. And obviously, these are massively different levels we're talking about here. I'm just only, you know, my point is that I have some personal experience with weight cuts and, you know, that are big and extremely strenuous and I have some empathy there. Um, they shorten your career in a lot of ways. Probably most importantly, they, they lower your punch resistance. And I think there's real good scientific evidence out there. Like your head and your brain are literally dehydrated. And I think that part is scary. Uh, and so they re reduce your punch resistance there. I think they also re lower your explosiveness and, and kind of like reduce your athleticism, which when you hear the narrative of what Jared Hurd is doing, at 154 pounds, they're basically the narrative is he's a great athlete and he's relying on athleticism, which there are some elements of that to truth. But I think this this weight cut actually hurts his athleticism. You know, he is a great athlete, and it, and this hurts it. This like it can definitely affect other organs in your body and how much wear and tear they can take, especially on body punches. If I was managing hurt, I would absolutely recommend that he go up to 160 pounds and build to challenge Charlo there on PBC's platform, you know, maybe even see if there are great fights for him at DAZN if he, if, if he sort of has one or two rebuilding fights. Like, this is truly for his longevity in the sport. I mean, he's an amazing TV fighter, and I want to watch as much of him as possible. And I don't want this to turn into a story later in life that's not a positive one. I, you know, I think he's also a skilled boxer. He may not be, you know, at the very A level of skill, but I think he is a skilled boxer and he fights in a fa fan friendly style. So I don't want to see him continually cut down to 154 uh, and, and risk all this stuff, risk shortening his career. Um, I'm not saying he would beat a lot of top fighters at 160. I think he'd make great fights there. And I think it would help the PBC universe to build to a big fight there with, with Charlo. Um, and like I said, if he wanted to go across the street, a la Danny Jacobs, I, th I think he could. Like, there's there's obviously big money to be made there. One other quick news and note before we get into the deep dive. State of combat, folks. I got the bat signal from your last episode on what Canelo should do next. Maybe, you know, should he or shouldn't he fight Triple G in September? This is a pretty easy one. DAZN needs him to fight Triple G. They need their sub number as high as possible. They need to make the big fights as soon as possible. If this doesn't happen... Your discussion, which was really interesting to listen to, will only be relevant from the standpoint of that I'm sure the fine folks in DAZN's PR group will likely use it as the basis for spinning the notion that DAZN couldn't get the Triple G Canelo fight made in September. DAZN 100% needs that to happen, and the only way they don't need it to happen is if they make Joshua versus Wilder for September instead, and they can sort of delay Canelo Triple G to November or December. All right, on to the deep dive this episode. I wanted to take a look at the PBC ratings on Fox for a few reasons. Uh, it's something I've talked about for a while and I've wanted to do for a while. And rather than just jump the gun, I wanted to wait till there was some clear evidence of actual trends, not just sort of what happened in the first few fights. Like, I also think it's worth saying that like we are only a few fights into a long-term deal <clears throat> that the PBC has with Fox. And what we're seeing now may not be what we're going to see in the future. 
And also, just to be clear here, I picked the PBC on Fox, and not really, I don't really get into FS1, or and certainly on Showtime, um, you know, I think FS1 is a different conversation for the most part, and, and, I, and I think, I don't think we, when it comes to PBC with Showtime, I just don't think we've seen a lot of great stuff, and I'm hoping and I'm guessing that that will change. Uh, but this shouldn't be about Showtime. I mean, the significant thing about PBC on Fox is that we're finally getting boxing back onto the biggest stage possible with US TV. Like Fox is a network television station, and it's in virtually every home in the US. You can get it for free. And finally, boxing is available to the widest possible audience in the US, and that's obviously tremendous. Before we get into the actual ratings, because obviously we're not just going to sit here and list off numbers and say whether they're good and bad for something like this. Let's take a look at what is happening to broadcast TV right now, because this is going to come out right around the time that upfront start for TV. Like, you know, what are upfronts you might ask? Well, those are things that networks put on each year to present their programming to ad execs who buy commercial time. Like if you buy ads for Budweiser or Nike or some big company, Dunkin' Donuts, whatever, that is going to spend hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars each year, you're going to be paying close attention to these types of things. Because although there's like a lot of different ways to spend your money, TV has always reached the widest audiences possible, and it gives you a lot of different types of programming where you can find audiences for your brand that really matter. But the thing about... This is the thing, where we are right now, and remember, <clears throat> I, I did, remember that episode I did maybe a few months back where I explained like how we got to this point, and I kind of started like years back. It, it, in the past year, it, it, it's even literally changed since then, and, and if you look at the past year, we've gone from terrestrial TV getting terrible ratings to even worse. Like, DEFCON 5 has gone, it's gone from DEFCON 5 to basically, like, I didn't know there was anything worse than DEFCON 5. And that's where we are right now. Like, right now, according to Nielsen, and, and this is coming from an Ad Age article um, about live and, and same-day data, NBC, CBS, and Fox are on course to close out the 2018-2019 broadcast season in a three-way tie with each network averaging a 1.2 rating over the course of the last 32 weeks. That rating means that just 1.55 million adults in the 18 to 49 age range per night are watching these networks in primetime. And ABC is about to become the first network in history, in history, to close out the season with under a 1.0 rating. ABC is doing 1.16 million adults, 18 to 49. These are historic lows, like terrible, terrible, terrible numbers. Now, these include all types of programming, sports, comedies, dramas, reality, etc. And like, here's the real kicker, like live sports are the only thing that comes even remotely close to offering old school reach that that you used to get in the 90s and early 2000s, and even as recent as like seven or eight years ago. And basically live sports are the only thing that matters in a real way in terms of any kind of major audience at this point. 
the NFL completely dominates everything on TV. And remember, these are primetime numbers we're talking about here. So they don't even count the afternoon games in the NFL that are coming on Sunday. They don't even count those. There are a few things to mention that are really important and probably not what you think of. You know, the, the audience listening to this is boxing fans, so they're not necessarily what you think of. Like, let's take CBS for an example, as CBS actually cares about an older demo. And I just want to provide some of this for context because we're reading all these numbers. Oh, boxing on this does this many viewers. So CBS is actually averaging 7.3 million viewers total for its programming during this time period. But it's only doing 1.55 million in that 18 to 49 highly sought after demo. Fox, for instance, averages 4.4 million total viewers for its programming which is obviously relevant because we are talking about boxing on Fox. But overall here, so we're seeing that with the exception of live sports, the younger audiences are completely abandoning traditional network television. The statistic that I really liked when I was digging through the numbers and sort of reading that Ad Age article is that if you look at the top 25 broadcast series on TV, the average demo rating is like a 1.5 or around 1.93 million adults, 18 to 49. And just four years ago, not even that long ago, the same top 25 shows averaged out to a 2.7 rating or 3.43 million adults, 18 to 49. So in the larger picture, some of that is clearly people like just aging out of the upper 49 year old tier in that age group and just not getting replaced by younger people coming into the 18 year old bottom tier. But some of that is also just younger people in the 18 to 49 age group that either grew up or, or are somewhat adjusted to cable TV. They're used to it. They're just deciding not to watch it anymore. Like they're just abandoning it. So what does all this mean? Especially considering I haven't even started talking about numbers that the PBC is actually doing on Fox. What well, basically means that while many people have lauded the return of boxing onto network TV, the concern that I've always had, and I'm not alone in this, is that it may not matter that much for the health of the sport. Boxing is one of the few sports that hasn't had its average age grow dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years. I've cited an article that came out a few years ago that kind of like showed this sports business journal. And there's other proprietary stuff I've seen on this issue, too, in terms of research. But I think the overall point I'm trying to make here is that boxing needs to pursue this younger audience as much as possible. And I've always been wary with Fo that, that Fox is just not the best place to find it. And look, there are advantages to having an older audience for boxing on the whole. Because in general, the older audiences, I mean, first of all, they're the ones buying pay-per-view still, so it's great from that standpoint. And they still count. It still means more people are watching. But I want to establish that just because you're getting more viewers on Fox, it doesn't mean that the sport is benefiting tremendously from it. I'm not saying it's not good. I want to be clear on that. More viewers is better. And if we're talking about the overall sport of boxing, getting more viewers is a good thing. But it's a smaller part of the overall battle than you think. Boxing on Fox can still be sustainable 
without younger viewers. But just to be clear, what advertisers care about is that highly sought after 18 to 49 demo where there is disposable income and the audience hasn't gotten locked into spending habits yet with certain brands. Once the audience is older, they usually have solid opinions on which brands they like. So even if they still have disposable income, advertisers care a lot less about that demo. What I've always looked for, or the way I've always looked at it is how can the sport be sustainable on TV, no matter how many people are watching overall. And like I just mentioned, I think you can develop sustainability with an older audience. It's just not as lucrative, and it's not as necessarily as good for the sport. It's also the reason that when you compare what PBC is doing on Fox with what is happening on ESPN or DAZN, it's not a totally fair comparison because ESPN still does very well with a younger audience, and DAZN is basically built to attract a younger audience. So less viewers overall in a place like ESPN can still mean that the sport is very much sustainable, even more su sustainable, because ESPN is getting more of that younger audience, and it's still getting those huge fees from, from cable companies on a monthly basis. And the other part about this that's so important, it, it's not just what advertisers think, is I think you need to build that foundation for the next generation of boxing fans. When you look at these overall stats for viewing habits, you start to realize that most younger people, they quite simply don't watch network TV anymore or they watch it less and less. They've migrated away from turning their TV on, turning on the guide, and then starting with the network channels to pop up first before moving down and, and, and seeing what else is on. The viewing habits they've established now are they just straight up go to Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or whatever that thing is. Live sports are becoming the last appointment viewing that exists for TV. So I'm sure everyone listening wants... A review of the actual numbers, and let's go ahead and look at them now. So the December 22nd show and the January 27th show, they both, let's just say they both came in close to averaging 2 million viewers for the duration of the show. Peak numbers are important in some ways, but they're less important than you think because at the end of the day, ads are sold on gross rating points. So they're essentially agnostic as to whether you know, the number came on a TV spot at the beginning of the show or the end of the show. It's just sort of calculated on the total number for the duration of the show. But let's take let's take a look at these shows in isolation for a second. Some of the other numbers haven't been as good, and I don't just want to sit here and bash the PBC and say, oh, the ratings are dropping way down since the first two shows and this whole thing won't work. Like, as I've said before... First of all, the first two shows had the NFL to promo their fights, which was incredible in terms of on-air promo. And like I've said a lot on this show and others, Fox is switching to a new strategy where they are focused on live sports and live events like NFL, WWE, baseball, boxing, etc. So of the new product, like boxing, like everything else, boxing comes first. It came first. It hasn't always had the benefit of the other sports. Like, on my last appearance on, on Chris Mannix's podcast, you know, I said this. I said, you hope it doesn't turn into something where it's just a filler for dates that don't matter as much. Like they sign for 10 fights a year on, on Fox and in the places where Fox can't find something, they just stick it in there and hope it works. Like that's not what you want out of it. You want it to benefit from the other programming that can promote it well. The low ratings have mostly come where there's been no kind of programming that, that would help Fox out 
uh, or help PBC boxing out. And even even when there isn't baseball or, or football, the WWE will be around 52 weeks a year and should come soon and is only the night before. So so that the fact that it came without all that, you kind of have to take some of those low numbers and think, okay, well, they, they don't quite there, – there's an excuse for that. Like they don't quite – that doesn't – we're not at the point yet where they really, really matter. You know, and there are some other positives and negatives here. If you look at the positives, I look in the better shows, two million viewers. I mean, that's two million viewers. It's pretty good for boxing. Like boxing airs on Saturday night, which is the worst night for TV viewing. The bar is really low. And even if you look at Thursday nights on Fox, Fox has had some doozies this year on TV that haven't done much better than two million viewers. Overall, as I mentioned, though, Fox is averaging four point four million viewers. But even when you look further at that, that's like if you get two million on Saturday and Fox is averaging four point four overall, that's not terrible, especially when you consider that in the fall, Fox has Thursday night football, which is doing humongous numbers. It's the number two overall show on TV, with the number one overall show being Sunday night football on NBC. Either way, it's an outlier for Fox, and it's bringing up the average tremendously. Also, like I mentioned, if you look at peak viewership, you start to see some real positive signs. I think Thurman getting a 2.7 million peak is a good sign. Remember, too, unlike the Caleb Plant show on FS1 that did really well, that was the same day. I mean, you did have to change the channel to FS1, but that was the same day as that NFL, you know, as the NFL playoff games. Thurman's fight was on six days later than the NFL game. So though it got a, a lot of good promotion, it was still a week, basically a week out. You know, I think even the best sort of one of the, one of the most hopeful parts about what PBC is doing on Fox, it just goes back to what I mentioned about sort of what is happening overall on TV because it's like a two-way discussion for PBC on Fox where the younger audiences are just sort of abandoning network TV. Like I'll get to the bad news in a little bit. Uh, which is obviously that PBC on Fox is not doing well with younger demos. But the good news is that live sports are the only types of programming that are working on network TV right now in terms of drawing large audiences or younger audiences. And as bad as some of the TV audiences in terms of overall viewership for PBC have been, when you look at the audiences for dramas and comedies on Fox, for the ones that aren't successful, like it's really bad. Even just a week or two ago, Gotham barely got over 2 million viewers on a Thursday night. And the show, and after it, I think Orville was the show, it did not even get to 3 million. Like, this is Thursday night TV. Like, all of a sudden, PBC's better stuff, sustaining an average of 2 million viewers over a two-and-a-half-hour period on a Saturday night, the worst night of television, doesn't look that bad compared to that. It looks great. In this current climate, if you're a Fox exec and the choice is, where to put more of your resources or effort if it's, you know, into the hour-long dramas that are probably more expensive to make in just one hour than what PBC is doing for the entirety of 2.5 hours when the ratings are really similar. Like, you know what they'll pick. They'll pick PBC Boxing. Of course they will. Especially, like I've mentioned numerous times with the new Focus at Fox, where it's going to be on sports and live entertainment and unscripted shows, that's the way things are headed. Like, What's crazy is that if you've listened to this podcast for you know over a year now, you kind of know what I feel is sustainable and what's not. But also remember, 
since this show has started, a year, you know, started in January of, of 2018, the bar has changed. Like, every year, overall TV ratings keep going down. And if a show can just maintain its audience, that's viewed as a big win. I mean, even NBA audiences went down from 2018 to 2019, this, you know, this, this past year, this past season. Just maintaining your audience is viewed as a huge win in this environment. So when it gets a little scary, the, the, it, when you look at who's watching Boxing on Fox, and this is what I alluded to earlier, we never read this part. Like if you read the articles and, and, and Boxing Scene and some of these other places, they do a great job of talking about how many people watch the boxings, you know, watch the boxing on this and, and how it can queue up with their digital numbers and that kind of stuff. But just let me tell you, like Fox is not doing well with the younger audience. And, and like that's an understatement. Like I said before, doesn't mean it's not sustainable, but it's definitely not a great sign. When you look at overall performance, and you've heard this to me from the past, so I don't want to harp on it that much. Like PBC on Fox has lost to reruns on other networks in, in both overall viewership and, and like the ratings that matter. And what they do in the 18 to 49 age group, it's at its worst, it's objectively terrible for what it should be doing. At its best, it's 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 fine it, or solid at its best. Like let's look at the Thurman show, that only got a 0.5 rating in adults 18 to 49, which is actually solid. Like it's it's not embarrassing at all. It's certainly for a Saturday night. But when you look at their bad shows, like April 20th, the Danny Garcia fight, they got like a 0.3 rating in, in adults 18 to 49. Like some of that is explainable by the bigger picture stuff I've said earlier. You know, yada, yada, yada. Young people don't automatically go to networks, much less Fox, to consume their TV. Saturday nights, certainly for young people, are a true graveyard. Like, but I just, I don't know why PBC is getting these kind of low numbers for, for the younger audiences. Like, there's several weird theories I have, but you can't really explain it. I mean, I would say you go back to that thing, young people aren't tuning in, but I just, in order to explain this purely in numbers in order to sort of put a button on this let's look at what happened this past saturday night i think this kind of tells the story in just sort of one saturday night there's no nba playoffs on there's nhl playoffs on nbc there's pbc boxing on fox and there's top ranked boxing on espn so overall numbers when you look at overall numbers and i'm just going to look at the sports here not the other stuff we see the nhl and the pbc not looking so hot Compared to other networks, and let's leave ESPN out of this just for a second, the NHL and boxing, the PBC boxing, were really low compared to everything else. PBC had the lowest viewership of anything out there, and the only thing close to it was a show on CBS called Million Dollar Mile, which came on at 8 p.m. and averaged a little over 1.5 million viewers. NHL wasn't much better. It beat Million Dollar Mile, and it barely beat... American Idol on ABC, which was a rerun. And, you know, in terms of total viewership, it got almost 2.1 million total viewers, uh, the NHL did. But when you dig further, when you look at adults 18 to 34, NHL almost won the night. It gets a 0.5 rating in that age, losing only to Saturday Night Live, which got a 0.6. So it just barely lost to Saturday Night Live in 18 to 34. When you extend that to 18 to 49, NHL still finishes second overall in terms of shows. It loses by a much wider margin to Saturday night, 
like NHL got a 0.6 in adults 18 to 49. SNL got a 1.2. PBC Boxing, on the other hand, overall gets a 0.89 rating. It gets a 0.3 for adults 18 to 49 and a 0.2 for adults 18 to 34. To bring ESPN back into the mix, on the same night, top-ranked boxing on ESPN gets a 0.48 rating overall, but does a 0.27 in adults 18 to 49 and a 0.22 rating for adults 18 to 34. And like I mentioned up top, while that's not great for network TV, that's great for cable. So despite the fact that PBC on Fox has almost double the total number of viewers that top rank on ESPN does, Fox only barely beats ESPN in 18 to 49 and actually loses to ESPN in 18 to 34. That's pretty crazy. And again, I'm not trying to bash these overall numbers because I think it's, it's really easy to, but the TV environment has changed such that even with these numbers, and I thought they weren't necessarily great in December or January. I thought they were, they're good, but they're starting to look okay, if not good now. I mean, like, yeah, the February, March, April numbers have been terrible, but let's start looking at, like, real-world applications here for, for what PBC is doing in terms of weight classes. I want to look at 147 and 154 and how they can build this thing moving forward. Even just a year ago, if you were to compare welterweight and 154 and say which, which, which weight class is better for PBC, I mean, it was welterweight. It wasn't even close. 154 was looked at as like something for hardcore fans. I mean, maybe it had some great undercard stuff for Showtime in 2018. But if you look at like how these divisions have played out and what it means, it, it's pretty crazy. I mean, at welterweight, Keith Thurman has drawn Fox's biggest audience so far. But just for full context, he's fought on CBS before. He's fought on ESPN before. He's got some name recognition with, with casual fans, and he had the benefit of, of NFL promo. So he, sh- he should have had the highest rating. But Danny Garcia, who is one of Showtime's quote-unquote stars, and Sean Porter, who has a title, like they've gotten some pretty bad ratings. I mean, Garcia has the worst TV audience so far on Fox, and that's even counting the Leo Santa Cruz fight that was up against NBA All-Stars, uh, the skills competition on that Saturday night. With the exception of the one fighter who's been on CBS and ESPN before, the welterweights, supposedly PBC's best division, have done terrible on network TV. And yeah, that doesn't count Pacquiao, who would surely do a great rating, but, you know, he's still a pay-per-view star. That doesn't count Errol Spence. I mean, we'll see how Errol Spence does uh, in August, and more on that in a second. But from a pure network stance... PBC supposedly has all these these stars at welterweight to command these big-time salaries. But if they aren't in competitive fights, then it doesn't help your ratings much. Then you look at what PBC has done with 154, where they've actually matched up their top guys against each other. And they've done okay. They've done pretty good. I mean, yeah, the overall rating for Heard Williams wasn't that great, but the main event did really well. I mean, it peaked at over 2 million viewers. And the December show, which had two 150, uh, or, or it had one 154 and then a 160 bout, that was like their second best viewership night so far. And so that's basically, if you just look at peak numbers in terms of which fights have done best overall, it's been two of the top three, other than the Thurman fight, have come from 154. 
And these aren't guys with huge name recognition. Like, this is an opportunity to build fighters when they're good competitive fights, and people will tune in, even if it's not the biggest stars. I mean, if the, if you put competitive fights on with the biggest stars, I think they really would tune in. Given that 154 is more cost-controlled than 147. And by the way, like, almost as deep. Let's see more of that. Like, let's see it in other weight classes, too. I mean, I think it's super noteworthy sort of in closing that a division like 154 has, has basically done almost as well, if not better, than 147. And I think building on that, I think it's noteworthy that, that Spence Porter, uh, which is coming August 3rd, it's on Fox and not on pay-per-view or Showtime. And there's a lot of interesting things to take away from that. Like, either way, and first of all, credit PBC and Fox for making a great fight on free TV. You know my my take, which is they probably should have come out of the gates and led with a fight like this in December or January. But there's a lot of other things going on with this fight, and I think there's a lot of pressure on it. You know, I've said all along, I think the Fox contract, you know, which reports have said that can, it can be between 40 and $60 million a year, I think it's reliant on incentives, be it either pay-per-view sales or audience numbers. It shouldn't come as a shock that since January... Uh, the January pay-per-view that was on Showtime with Pacquiao, everything else we've seen from the PB side or the rumored PBC side has going to be, you know, it's on Fox pay-per-view. And the question with this is, do you say, is PBC putting on with the Spence uh, Porter fight, are they putting on a high-level fight because they want to or because they have to? That's the real question with this. You know, I think there's some interesting tidbits, like, okay, maybe it, you can say it protects Spence's pay-per-view value because, you know, no matter what, he won't have to go in and get a low pay-per-view number. I've seen that narrative out there. I'm not sure I fully agree with it, uh, but there are kernels of truth to it because Sean Porter, you have to think, you know, isn't a great pay-per-view B-side the same way that Mikey Garcia would be for a variety of reasons. The August 3rd fight also, look, it has baseball, uh, but not a whole lot of NFL stuff. Yes, the preseason will have started. But the Hall of Fame game, I think, is on August 1st on NBC. So there won't be a big preseason game on Fox to help promote the fight. I mean, from a pure spectator standpoint, I'm really excited to see the fight. I hope the viewership number is really high. But this will tell us a lot. I mean, given how much I'm sure it costs to make, it'll also, more importantly, give us a sense for how the PBC venture on Fox could go further. Because I think... If this delivers a truly great number, then great. Then all these these all these different websites or all these different uh, weight classes should be in play. But if it doesn't, then I think what we'll start to see is some of these other weight classes, like 154, be really the focus. And maybe they should be. Maybe the truly premium welterweight fights should be the ones that end up on Showtime. Maybe Showtime can afford those in a way that, that Fox can't. And Fox is, is the right place to build some of these fighters, you know, especially where there's competitive weight classes, you know, competitive depth in certain weight classes. But this is a big moment. That August 3rd fight is going to be a big moment no matter what. All right. On to the preview section. Later this week, on Friday, May 17th, from Belfast, Northern Ireland, we have ESPN Plus coming on with Ryan Burnett's comeback fight. No odds out on the fight yet. I don't care about it that much, but it is worth mentioning. 
So then on Saturday, May 18th, we have a loaded day of boxing. Let's get through the foreign stuff first on ESPN Plus, also on ESPN Plus. BJ Saunders fights Shafat Isufi, and Joe Joyce fights Alexander Ustinov. Sanders is somewhere between a 40 to 50 to 100 to 1 favorite on most betting sites. And it really doesn't matter because Isufi's only path to victory is if Sanders looks overweight and terrible and clearly didn't take training camp seriously. Um, but I think he probably did, and it'll probably be a blowout. Joyce is like a 40 or 50 to 1 favorite, uh, but I will say some odds makers, I found one odds maker that had it 25 to 1, and then they had the comeback on Ustinov as only plus 900, so 9 to 1. And what that really means is Joyce is still probably likely to win, but this is a, we're starting to get into really interesting or noteworthy development fights for him. He's moving fast. And this is enough of a step up for him that I think it, it is it is noteworthy and probably will be a good watch. Um, DeZone, another foreign fight. They're putting on the World Boxing Super Series semifinals from Glasgow where Ivan Branchik is fighting Josh Taylor for Branchik's uh, IBF 140-pound title. The winner will face Regis Prograde in the finals of the World Boxing Super Series. You guys know, based if you listen to the last episode, you know what's at stake there. I think the winner of this will get a huge money contract from someplace. And I think I think maybe maybe all three or four of these guys uh, that come out of the semifinals will do really well if they want to in terms of finding a new home. Uh, also on the card, Emmanuel Rodriguez is fighting Naoe Inoue for Rodriguez's IBF bantamweight title, where the winner will go on to fight Nonito Donaire. Um, Taylor is like a 6 or 7 to 1 favorite uh, with Branchik, the comeback being like four to one, five to one as an underdog. I think Branchik definitely has a pathway to victory here. It should be an awesome fight. Branchik is clearly going to come out and just, you know, like he's really going to test Taylor's skill level. In a way, is like an eight or nine to one favorite. I think Rodriguez also has a pathway to victory, but. Uh, while Rodriguez is a really good fighter, Inoue is looked upon as a potentially great or even generational fighter. Uh, so while Rodriguez does have a pathway to victory, I think it's less about him and it's more about seeing how Inoue, how comfortable he gets at this, you know, as, as he moves up a weight class. You know, I think this will be his second fight at 118. But both of these are really interesting fights. This should be a, a really good card. Uh, top to bottom, I'm really excited about it. Um, on Showtime, from Brooklyn, Deontay Wilder fights Dominic Brazil for the WBC heavyweight title, and Gary Russell Jr. fights Kiko Martinez for the WBC featherweight title. Juan Geraldez fights Argenis Mendez in the opener. Wilder started out as a much tighter favorite, like 4 or 5 to 1. Now he's mostly 8 or 9 to 1, uh, and he definitely should win, and I favor him to win. But this is a really big fight. It is a great fight on Showtime. It is probably one that could have been on pay-per-view. And given what Showtime probably had to pay for this, really give them credit for putting on uh, this kind of level fight on, on your regular Showtime subscription. Russell Jr. is like a 50-to-1 favorite or higher. There's no odds out yet on the opening Geraldez-Mendez fight. Uh it's definitely one really high-quality fight on this card. It could be two, depending on the opener. And then Gary Russell Jr., I think 
he is a he is an excellent fighter. There is no doubt about it. He is from close to you know he's basically from the DMV area, which is you know I'm I'm grew up tangentially on the outsides of uh, of that area. So I'm inclined to like people from there in terms of of fighters, but we're at the point if we don't see him in an interesting fight soon, I mean forget it. I don't know what else to say. Either way, out of all these these fight cards, we definitely have like three really high quality fights. We have the potential for another interesting fight or two, so it's a nice day of boxing. All right, moving on to the next weekend. On Saturday, May 25th, on ESPN, Masayuki Ito fights Jamal Herring for Ito's WBO Junior Welterweight title, and Jose Pedraza makes his comeback fight against Antonio Lozada. No odds out yet on either of these fights, but what I will say is ESPN is doing, like I mentioned earlier, some very interesting things at this weight class. They are building towards unification fights. You've got to love that. And, I, and Jamal Herring is... I think he's a fun TV fighter. Masayuki Ito, if you watched him fight on ESPN Plus a couple months ago, that was, he had a really great performance. And he's also uh, not much of an amateur background and, and a pretty interesting fighter. Uh, it's just a great weight class for fights. I'm interested to see what happens here. I will say for both this one, and I'm about to get to the FS1 fights, many times on Memorial Day weekend, the fights don't do that great on TV. So my expectations aren't super high for this. But, uh, you know, a noteworthy card nonetheless, just based on what it can build to. So then getting to the same day fight, FS1, Austin Trout fights Terrell Gachet at junior middleweight, uh, which also fits into the PBC strategy that I mentioned earlier, what they can do with 154 pounds. Um, I think that's really the only interesting fight on the FS1 show. And then obviously the big loss here is we were going to have a big fight with Alexander Usyk moving up to heavyweight and fighting Carlos uh, Carlos Takam, but he's injured. He's out. That sucks. Devin Haney uh, is going to headline the card now against Antonio Moran, from what I've heard. No odds out yet on that fight, uh, and I think Michael Hunter will be on the fight card as well. He is another interesting, sort of noteworthy fighter to watch. I can't say... so. Looking back at this year, I can't say Trout Gachet is going to be that great of a fight uh, inside the ring, but whoever emerges will be important for the PBC strategy. You know, the Usyk thing, like I said, that's a bummer. Devin Haney should win. So the 25th, not necessarily the best total day, you know, day for boxing, nothing like the 18th, but it's okay. It's okay. And then we're going to get some fun stuff in June. All right. That is it for this episode. Like I said, just I, I hope to get so I was featured in the New York Fights uh, Johnny Wilde's article. I hope to get a companion written piece out, uh, hopefully in the next few days, on what's happening with the PBC thing based on this episode. Either way, check it out, it's all coming soon, and then there is fun stuff coming in June. Talk to you guys later. Did you get what you was looking for?